0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the 2020 Ford Explorer. With available intelligent four-wheel drive and the terrain management system, it's built for life's adventures, which makes it the ideal vehicle for modern-day explorers
1: like professional big-wave surfer Will Scootin. It's funny because a lot of people think your big-wave surfers are like, ah, psychos, you know, but, you know, for the most part, everybody there, everybody's pretty mellow, you know. No one's really a psycho until they hit the water. And uh, we are just tried to be a calculated madman, basically.
0: Scootin grew up in Long Beach, New York, in an ocean-loving family. When he was a teenager, he met legendary waterman Laird Hamilton. and That was all it took to get him obsessed with big wave surfing. At age 15, he saved up enough money bussing tables to cover a surf trip to Peru. The next year, he paddled out at Mavericks, the iconic giant wave off the Northern California coast.
1: Mavericks is probably the most pound-for-pound pound intimidating wave on the planet. And you know it when you fall, at Mavericks, that you can be like from zero to 60 feet deep in like, you know, two seconds, and that's when you black out. So Mavericks is a, is a, is a beast. At Mavericks, Scootin showed he was
0: ready to go big. He was exceptionally talented, good enough to eventually become a pro surfer. Ever since, he's been paid to travel the world and ride enormous waves. It's his dream job, but also really hard. Consider what it takes to surf the notorious wave at Nazaré off of Portugal.
1: Nazaré is not supposed to be surfed. It's just like, it's nasty. It's definitely, it's the gladiator pit of big wave surfing. It takes a unique person um, to really like fall in love, love with that wave. Now
0: 34 years old, Scootin is a consistent top 10 finisher on the Big Wave World Tour and he's not showing any signs of slowing down.
1: I love it. It really gives me a purpose and it's just so fun. I just I love the I love the challenge. You know, I really like the whole aspect of the team effort that goes into riding big waves. I like that feeling. I like the camaraderie
0: whether adventure is your life's work or just a weekend pursuit. Gear up with the greatest exploration vehicle of all time the 2020 Ford Explorer. It's been completely redesigned inside, outside, and under the hood. Learn more about what it can do for you and meet modern-day explorers like Will Scuden at outsideonline.com explorers. That's outsideonline.com explorers. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is The Outside Podcast. When it comes to health and fitness, everyone is looking for shortcuts. This has always been true, and it makes sense. Because training and eating well and generally taking care of yourself, all that requires a lot of effort. Lately, though, the hunt for easier approaches has gotten a lot more intense. There's a growing belief that getting fit is more about hacking your diet or your routine than it is putting in the hard work that really makes a difference. I mean... Why work out for an hour if you can just put an infrared light on your desk? Some of this is Silicon Valley's fault. There's an app for everything, right? And you could argue that some of it is Tim Ferriss's fault. His best-selling books explained all sorts of ways that we can transform our bodies and lives in just four hours. Given this climate, it's no surprise that there are hucksters out there selling all kinds of snake oil. But there are also voices who are worth listening to, those that understand the advantages of new technologies, but also recognize the reality of what it takes to be as healthy as you can be. This includes the author and exercise physiologist Ben Greenfield. I asked Outsides editor Chris Kies, who has been following fitness trends for two decades, for his take on Greenfield. We recently interviewed for the second time.
2: I guess the most honest answer is Ben is somebody that I, the type of guy that I usually don't like, because um, <laughs> he sort of has everything figured out, uh and he seems to live like a perfect lifestyle. Um He eats right, he exercises right, he sleeps perfectly well, he does everything. And if you read the bio on his website, it's like an unending list of, of successes uh that speak to a guy who's never like really struggled with anything. So, you know, for somebody like me who has a lot of flaws, it's, uh, it's kind of a turnoff. Greenfield has made a name for himself
0: with some of his more questionable endeavors and ideas. A couple years ago, he injected his penis with stem cells as part of a quest to explore the outer edges of sexual performance enhancement. He's voiced skepticism about standard vaccination practices.
2: Still, Chris says that Greenfield always does his homework. He's somebody in the fitness and, and health space who really knows what he's talking about. He's been a personal trainer since the early 2000s, um, was once named the America's personal trainer of the year. And he, like many others in this space, tested everything on his clients, but also first on himself. And he reads um, scientific literature like relentlessly. So he really knows what's going on and is sort of backed up by science, whatever he's prescribing. Greenfield's new book
0: is Boundless, Upgrade Your Brain, Optimize Your Body, and Defy Aging. It covers, well, pretty much anything you might want to know about being the fittest, smartest, and healthiest human that you can be.
2: And I think this book, um, uniquely to anything else he's written, is it's literally everything he's learned. It's an encyclopedia. It's uh, 600 pages, probably weighs three and a half pounds. Um it's a big, big hardcover book that you could use as a, a weight in your office if you if you need to get exercise during the day. And um I was sort of like overwhelmed when it showed up in my inbox. But the cool thing about it is that you can you can really open up to any page and just dive in. What
0: were the sections that stood out to you personally where you were like, I gotta read this?
2: Sleep. I went right to sleep. I mean the I've got three kids, as you know, and uh, I'm, I'm the the youngest is now sleeping well, so we're, we're back in the in the good phase. But it, sometimes it doesn't matter. The kids don't matter. It's it's all the other parts of life, stress that you deal with that make it hard to get a good night's sleep, and it's something I'm always wrestling with. But Ben has a chapter on sleep that is just full of good nuggets of information. Um, it's a little overwhelming. I mean, he starts with he's he's got a list of. I'm not kidding you, 12 tools that he uses. These are products that he uses. I mean, my bedtime routine is one tool, it's like a toothbrush, but I was pretty enticed by a few of the things, particularly about napping. Um, I really like the idea of taking a midday nap. What I'm trying to figure out right now is how I can pull this off in the office without anybody knowing it. I'm, I'm fortunate to have a blind that goes on my the, the window into my office. Um, so it's it's a matter of what I can set up. Is it, a, is it a yoga pad or something that I can just quick quickly, discreetly pop in for a nap for 20 to 30 minutes?
0: Yeah, well, maybe you have to call Ben back
2: and ask him about that.
0: I did ask him. <laughs> Chris reached Ben at his home in Spokane, Washington.
2: Another Another theme that you hit on all the time in this book is the importance of sleep. And I think everybody, especially in this country where we have a, a, a dysfunctional relationship with sleep, has had this drilled into us why it's so important. But I'm sure you still have clients to this day who are resistant to it. So what's the, what's the, the main cell for why sleep is so foundationally important?
3: well i mean you know sleep sleep is when your nervous system repairs it's when learning and and memory consolidation occurs you know which is especially important for for students but also anyone who who is uh, who is learning for their job or needs to learn for their job? It's when uh, this this newer concept called glymphatic drainage occurs, which is when the brain actually drains a lot of toxins, a lot of inflammation, you know, almost like a like lymph fluid circulation for the brain. Uh, and you know, when when it comes to sleep, I think a lot of people now. Are pretty aware of basic sleep hygiene concepts, uh, but it's the application of those concepts that becomes important. So, what I mean by basic sleep hygiene is we know that light is important, temperature is important, and noise is important. Really, those are the big three. It would be light, uh, temperature, and noise. And people think, "Oh, I should okay, I'll sleep in a dark room. I'll keep things kind of cool, and uh, you know, um, you know, try try to make things a little bit quiet in the bedroom." But there's so much more that you can delve into to optimize sleep. For example, your circadian rhythm doesn't start at night; it starts in the morning. By getting exposure to as much natural blue light, as much sunlight, as even even looking at computer screens and and you know and 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 phones, all those are forms of blue light as well, which we'd find in sunlight. Doing that earlier in the day can actually help to jumpstart the circadian rhythm. And you know, in, in the book, I even talk about some of these biohacks you can use now, such such as, uh, you know, bright uh, white light therapy via earbuds that you place in your ears, or these these reddish or, or these uh, bluish green light-producing glasses that you can wear that actually stimulate your retina with a light that simulates what you'd be getting from sunlight. Which is, you know, it's useful if you're in an office that's poorly lit, but you still need to jumpstart that circadian rhythm early in the day. And if you do that early in the day, and then you pair that with light mitigation strategies later on at night, it, that's really how you manage sleep. And by light mitigation strategies, what I mean by that is you install a software program such as Iris on your computer, which sucks all the blue light out of the computer screen whenever the sun happens to be setting in whatever area of the world that you happen to be in. Or you know, as I've done in, in my bedroom and in my children's bedroom, you replace the 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 large blue light producing LED type of lights or fluorescent lights with red incandescent lighting, which is much more similar to what you'd get from from a sunset at night or or a torch or a firelight, you know, that our ancestors would have used to light things up at night. And so it's far kinder to the circadian rhythm when you're in your bedroom getting ready for bed at night, and there's no circadian disrupting blue light that you're getting exposed to. You know, another example would be, uh, the temperature, you know, you, you might be turning the temperature down in your bedroom, which can vastly improve sleep, but there are other cool little strategies that you can utilize, such as, uh, you know there are companies now like like ChiliPad that sell these little sheet devices that will circulate 55 degree cold water under your body while you're sleeping, which which I've found to be absolutely amazing for increasing deep sleep cycles. Or you can use a, a less expensive tactic such as wearing a wearing a pair of wool socks when you go to bed, which you would think would keep you warm. But what that does is it causes vasodilation, which actually cools the rest of the body and allows for more blood to be delivered to the core to keep you cool at night. So there are these, these little things that you can do to optimize temperature. And then when it comes to silence, sure, sleeping in a, in a silent room is good, but you can also do things like download an app onto your phone that will play noise that blocks ambient noise. Like for example, uh, at Stanford university, they've done studies on, you know, white noise and brown noise and pink noise and all these different forms of noise that help to cover up ambient sound. And it turns out that a form of noise called pink noise is the best noise to play if you were gonna put your phone in airplane mode or you know put on a, a good set of, of uh, you know noise blocking headphones and play beats while you're sleeping or napping. So you know there's a, there's an app that I use for this called Sleepstream, which is a very simple app. It's like a DJ for sleep. You can play pink noise, you can play some binaural beats, and it's wonderful to lull you to sleep for a nap or or an airplane ride or even a, a full night of sleep. So rather than just keeping the room quiet, you can actually introduce sound that help to enhance that even more. So the trick is to say, okay, what's... What are the basic sleep hygiene concepts, such as uh, presence of natural light in the morning and absence of that same light in the evening, presence of, of cold in the air and cold on the bed when you're sleeping, and absence of silence or presence of noises that help to enhance sleep. And you begin to weave all these into your, your sleeping protocol. You can quantify things like sleep cycles or heart rate variability, nervous system, etc., using something like, a, like an aura ring or a whoop wristband or any of these devices that can allow you for to to get daily self-quantification and man when i when i introduce a lot of these sleep biohacks so to speak my sleep score is absolutely far better than when i just say you know crawl into bed at at the end of the night and don't pay attention to these basic sleep hygiene principles
2: what about naps do you consider that like an essential thing or is it really from person to person and Only if you don't sleep well in one particular night, or do you advocate for like that being a habit during every
3: day? I am absolutely infatuated, obsessed, and in love with my own personal napping routine. So I I generally, I, I sleep seven to eight hours a night, but almost every day squeeze in a 20 to 40 minute nap in the afternoon. And I, I get into some research in the book that actually shows that the best time to nap is somewhere between about five to eight hours after you've woken, right? So if you're a 6 a.m. riser, you know your, your ideal napping time is going to be somewhere between about 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. And when you insert a nap into the day, especially if you're not sleeping, you know, let's say a full, you know, a lot of people, they, they feel very good on like seven and a half to nine hours of sleep during a 24 hour cycle, but that doesn't have to all occur during that single sleep time in bed overnight. You know, you, you can slap a little bit onto that from a 20 to 40 minute nap. And by using some of the tactics that I talk about in the book, you can simulate a full 90 minute sleep cycle with just a 20 to 40 minute nap. So, for example, um, two ways that you could do that is there are there's a, a, a form of a stimulation called vagal nerve stimulation, where they they have these devices that are typically placed over the temporal lobe or. Uh, over each side of the neck that actually stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system and lull you into this deep sleep state very quickly. There are apps such as um, New Calm that play audio sounds that do a very similar thing. And there are even more ancient tactics such as one called Yoga Nidra. And you can, you know, you can download Yoga Nidra tracks off of, uh, you know, Apple music or or off of YouTube and play these for a very quick, you know, 20 to 30 minute tune up that leaves you feeling as though you've had a full 90 minute sleep cycle. And so for me, my nap feels like it gives me two full days, like, you know, one full day of productivity leading up to about 2 PM. Then I get my nap in and then another full day of productivity after that versus what I think a lot of people experience, which is, working pretty hard until two or three or four o'clock. And then you get that brain fog, that tiredness that sets in. And the last few hours of your workday, you might be operating on fumes and maybe a little bit too tired to hit the gym after work, for example, or, or be fully present for let's say a family dinner or something like that. For me that that's invaluable because I can just operate at such higher productivity.
2: So another thing, so cold water therapy, Um, it's sort of like sleep. We've all heard a lot about this, especially in recent years, um, even more recently than the sleep phenomenon of of, um, people focusing so much on that. Um, I think, though, that there's probably even more resistance to that than sleep because it's uncomfortable. So what happens to your body in thermogenesis with cold water exposure that is so key um, that makes it worth the the discomfort that you're gonna go through for for you know small amount of time
3: well the 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 benefits are. Um, there's there, there, there are multitude of benefits. Uh, I've already talked about or mentioned the vagus nerve. You know how you could stimulate the vagus nerve to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest nervous system, to be able to relax more quickly. Uh, but the but the vagus nerve is so important because it's you know it's one of these uh, originally cranial nerves that snakes throughout the entire body and innervates the the gut, uh, a variety of organs. And there's a concept called vagal nerve tone, meaning that if you have high tone of your vagus nerve. You have better interplay between your sympathetic fight and flight nervous system and your parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system, meaning that you have the ability to be able to shift in and out of stress very quickly. Because one's goal should not necessarily be to reduce stress at all costs, but to instead be able to amp up stress when you do want to be stressed, such as right before a workout or, or at the start line of a 5K. But you also want to be able to very efficiently shift out of sympathetic nervous system, such as when the workday is done and it's time to go have dinner, or you know emails in the evening are done and it's time to begin to prepare for bed. And high vagal nerve tone allows you to be able to do that more efficiently. And it turns out that cold water exposure, particularly to the neck, the head, and the face can actually increase vagal nerve tone. And we know that that cold exposure can also do things like cause production of nitric oxide, which acts you know as a vasodilator, almost like Viagra for the entire body. So you get better blood flow to tissues and to muscles. Uh, we know that it can cause the conversion of metabolically inactive white adipose tissue to more metabolically active brown fat. And so you know the the benefits of cold go on and on. You know, it's wonderful for modulating the immune system as well, Uh, it may be able to impart some longevity benefits. And I suspect that the recent men's uh, Finnish longevity study that showed that a regular sauna practice four to five times per week could increase lifespan by four to five years while simultaneously decreasing risk for things like Alzheimer's and dementia. One thing that was left out of that uh, was the cold part of things, because if you go over to Finland and you go to any of the, the sauna houses over there, or let's say the you know, any of the Finnish sauna societies, you're not just in the sauna. Typically, they're in the sauna for, you know, 10 to 20 minutes, and then you're going out of the sauna through the frigid cold air, jumping in something like the Baltic Sea, staying in there, treading water for two to five minutes, getting back out, cooling yourself in the ambient cold air right beside the sea, and then going back into the sauna. And so I think the longevity enhancing benefits of cold may actually, you know, and, and hopefully eventually be, be fleshed out in research as well. And so I'm a huge fan of of both the heat and the cold, but as you alluded to, Chris, you know it can be um, it can be difficult, it can be teeth grittingly difficult to actually get used to a cold practice. And so, one of the things that I talk about in the book is simply beginning what's with, with what's called hot cold contrast, and this is based on some research that was done in uh, Ray Cronise's metabolic laboratory, and he's the guy that that Wired magazine, I think, way back in 2013, originally did the article on. You know, he was one of the early metabolic uh, cold thermogenesis researchers. And, uh, what he proposed was a hot, cold contrast shower, which is a five minute shower comprised of 20 seconds of cold to 10 seconds of hot. And you simply cycle through that 10 times for a total of five minutes. And a lot of people like that as kind of like entry level cold thermogenesis because you're combining it with the heat. And the cool thing about it is that you're also getting the vasodilation, vasoconstriction, right? Blood, blood vessels shrinking and then enlarging based on the interaction between the heat and and the cold, similar to what you get if you were fluctuating between like the sauna and, and a cold soak or the sauna and a cold shower. And so that's a very good way to get started. But I think eventually for ideal vagal nerve tone, for training the nervous system, folks who really want to tap into the benefits of cold thermogenesis should get to the point where using proper breath work, stabilizing the nervous system, settling down the sympathetic fight and flight nervous system getting themselves to the point where they can actually just put the water on cold and step right in or stand at the edge of a cold river and just wade right in and be able to resist that mammalian dive reflex that sharp intake of breath that you'd normally take in and instead just be cool as a cucumber literally, as you, as you get into this water or, or get into some cold or even get into a cryotherapy chamber and just be able to control the nervous system. You know, this is the, I, I think many of us will, will do something like cold or do something like a hard exercise session and stay too sympathetically stimulated throughout. And because of that, you can almost be hypercortisolic or excessively stimulated by these things. But by staying calm during a cold shower or a cold bath, you can train your vagus nerve uh, in a very similar way actually as, as another strategy I talk about in the book staying calm during hard exercise you know there there's a wonderful book called the oxygen advantage by author Patrick McCown and he goes into how when you train yourself how to engage in controlled nasal breathing, even during hard exercise, you can actually also increase your vagus nerve tone and increase your control over the sympathetic and parasympathetic components of the nervous system. So that's another thing that that I personally incorporate into my own exercise routine is unless I absolutely have to, unless I am so short of oxygen that I have to open up the big pipes and breathe through the mouth... I breathe through my nose during my entire exercise session, and the cool thing is you can go do a hard weight training session or an interval session on the treadmill, and by breathing through your nose the entire time, it almost becomes very meditative, and I've also noticed that you feel less hyperactive after the workout. You feel less exhausted after the workout because you've caused your nervous system to stay just slightly more in control by breathing through your nose instead of by breathing through your mouth. And another reason that occurs is because when you breathe through your mouth, it's far easier to engage in shallow chest breathing. And there are baroreceptors in the chest that can cause a cortisol release when you're engaging in the shallow chest breathing. So the deeper diaphragmatic nasal breathing can control a little bit of that cortisol release as well.
2: You also have some really interesting ideas about uh, the gym and how we've sort of been conditioned to squeeze our workouts into these confined boxes and confined sets of time um and and I think that's particularly timely right now because we're in the middle of January it's resolution season gym memberships are are peaking um, but you don't really feel like gym's not a bad idea but it's not necessarily the the place that you would start why is that
3: well if, I mean if you look at formal exercise sessions in a gym or a health club you know that that's something that would have been relegated to the realm of the extreme bodybuilder or the you know the gladiator the warrior the the athlete the the folks for whom performance is a pretty important metric. Uh, but, you know, A, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that that's necessarily the best way to maintain health. And as a matter of fact, we've seen that folks who exercise, you know, do a formal hard exercise session, at the beginning or the end of the day, and then have their butts planted in a chair for eight hours a day, apart from that, actually don't see a significant decrease in the risk of cardiovascular disease because what's called their NEAT, their non-exercise activity thermogenesis is relatively low aside from that single exercise session. And if you look at things from an ancestral standpoint, you know, the the human body was meant to move, to take many steps per day, to be building fences and hauling rocks and lifting heavy things and occasionally sprinting from a lion or, or chasing down prey throughout the day and not just have one single, you know, full-body-destroying exercise session at the beginning or the end of the day. So what, what I encourage people to do is to hack their environment so that the formal exercise session at the beginning or the end of the day is an option, not a necessity. And what I mean by that is doing things like uh, converting your office to a standing desk with a walking treadmill. You know, I personally walk anywhere from five to seven hours a day while I'm on phone calls or doing podcasts or reviewing literature um another example would be keeping something heavy on the floor of the office like a kettlebell or a, or a hex bar that you've got loaded up with some weights so that you can occasionally stop during the day to lift something heavy putting a pull-up bar installed on the door of an office or the door of a bedroom so every time you walk under it you can you can hang you can decompress you can maybe also do some pull-ups to be able to build strength via that method and you know in in the book I've got about five to six different routines that you can just kind of have in your back pocket that you can stop and do as tiny movement snacks throughout the day and by engaging in this low level physical activity with occasional lifts and occasional sprints during the day you actually uh you, you you're you're training the body to be engaged in, a, in far more ancestral movement patterns than simply getting huge amounts of inflammation and high amounts of muscle damage from doing something extremely hard at the beginning or the end of the day, but then staying sedentary the rest of the day. And, and don't get me wrong. like I think that a formal exercise session is important for people who might be training for a 10k or a marathon or a triathlon or a Spartan race or an Ironman you do have to go to the gym you do have to formally exercise you know all the more so if you're an athlete or a professional athlete but don't fool yourself into thinking that that's the ideal way to stay healthy or the ideal way to burn calories the gym is a place to build performance and not necessarily a place to build health it's the things that you do outside of the gym the low level physical activity all day long that makes a much bigger impact in metabolism and cardiovascular risk disease and in health than that gym session at the beginning or the end of the day. And finally, one other consideration is that, you know, I personally love the gym. I love to exercise. For me, it's almost like meditation. It's my happy place. It's a wonderful little bit of catharsis for me. Sometimes it helps to keep me a little bit more stabilized during the day. If I've done something, you know, to movement wise formally at the beginning of the day. But again, don't think that it's a necessity, especially if you've set up your entire day to be able to stay physically active at the office throughout the day.
2: So, were you, when you were working on this book, let's say you you got up one morning and you wanted to have a big day of writing, or big morning, let's say, how would you break up the time to ensure those little um, snack movement snacks, as you called them?
3: Yeah, for me, it's it's twenty five to thirty minutes of work followed by anywhere from two to five minutes of something active or something where I'm taking a break and moving, and so. The, you know, the, the actual literature on Pomodoro break shows something closer to like a 55 minute cycle on eight to nine minutes off is more effective. But for me, 25 to 30 minutes with two to five minutes off works pretty well. And I, I can keep that going for, you know, five to six hours of, of deep work over the course of a morning. And, you know, when I'm stopping, I'm doing things like kettlebell swings, some pull-ups from the pull-up bar in my office, uh, being on my walking treadmill, but shifting into a little bit of a jog or a little bit of a sprint, and then back into a walk. Once I'm done with that, um, you know, I've got a quarter mile long driveway. So occasionally it's just running down the driveway to check the mail or grab the boxes and, and running back up. And so, uh, for for me, it's having a bunch of kind of movements and things in your back pocket that you can rely upon for those little breaks that you work in during the day. Um, you know, the, the the other thing is that you know when when I was working on the book and still when I'm working on articles, I found dictation to be pretty effective as well. So, for example, you know I have a software on my computer called Dragon Dictation, and that allows me to actually speak with pretty good accuracy articles or emails, even when I'm doing something like walking on a treadmill, because it is hard to type and to, to move the mouse or the trackpad around when you're simultaneously walking. Uh, in addition to that, I'm a huge fan of a lot of these balance devices or what are called, uh, uh, you know, mats, balance mats, topographical mats that you can stand on at a standing workstation. Uh, and so, you know, there's one called a topo mat. There's another one called a, a kybun, which is more of a balance device, uh, at our at our boulder offices for Keon down in down in Colorado, we actually have a whole fleet of these devices called a fluid stance. And they're they're almost like a like one of those balance boards, but they're easy enough to balance on to where they don't drain you cognitively from whatever phone call or other task you happen to be working on, but you can use them to kind of rotate the hips and balance just a little bit while you're at work. So it doesn't have to be a walking treadmill, it can be a balance mat, a topo mat, a a fluid stance or other balance board. But basically, I'm, I'm always kind of like moving into a different position during the day when I'm working on any project because that's the key. Like if you just convert to a standing workstation and you're standing for eight hours a day, you're going to experience, you know, varicose veins and hip tightness and low back tightness and a whole host of issues that might be mildly different than what you get if you were sitting all day long, but that are still issues. And so the trick is to frequently switch positions to be able to kneel, to lunge, to walk, to to stand, to sit, and to be in a wide variety of different working positions during the day, not to simply choose one single position and have that be the only position that you're in.
0: We'll be right back. At the start of the episode, we heard about professional big wave surfer Will Scootin and how the 2020 Ford Explorer is built for his adventurous life. But when Scootin isn't out chasing the biggest waves on the planet, returns to his hometown of Long Beach, New York to help run his family's summer surf camp, which he started with his brother Cliff,
1: 13 years ago. I think when a whole family shares the same passion, I think it really keeps everybody together. The camp is very much a family
0: affair. Cliff runs the show, Will spearheads marketing and sponsorship, and Mom Beth and brother Woody help teach. The first year, nine kids signed on. Last summer, the and Surf team taught thousands. And thanks to the nonprofit Surf for All, which Cliff started a few years ago, the camp is able to work with a number of kids that have disabilities or special needs.
1: Like you see that one kid that their life changed that day. When they first show up, you know, there's oh you know, I am just gonna go learn to surf and kinda of treat it like a like a six flags or something and and then you've watched them form this relationship with the ocean and it just Student becomes so to much change more. change the
0: lives of kids with the surf camp. That's happened, but the work ended up changing his own life as well.
1: At first I was searching for nothing but good waves and big waves. And everything was really focused around just trying to find the next wave for myself. Now it's about searching those magic moments with other people you know still pushing it still still trying to get big waves myself but uh you know just opening my eyes a little bit more to to the experience and the journey and not just the the destination right not just the you know being on the ride and, for and all out of life's the windows, adventures right?
0: gear up with the greatest exploration vehicle of all time the 2020 ford explorer learn more about what it can do and meet modern day explorers like Will Scootin at outsideonline.com/slash-explorers.
2: And so, one thing I'm curious about: so you do you have all these practices, and obviously you're kind of constantly weaving them into your your daily routines. Like, so I think that the one of the biggest struggles people have, and again, speaking of resolution season, this is when people make these commitments to do, you know, to pick up a new habit like this, something healthy. But it's really hard for most people to, to sustain that. And I'm sure that's true of some of the clients you've worked out with over the years. Like, What do you advise people when trying to pick something up like this and, and to, you know, prevent it from just being something you do for a week but actually for a lifetime?
3: I think beginning small. Is is important, you know. I I, uh, I recently began to use a a new meditation app, and it's one of those apps where you have to do five one minute meditations before we'll unlock the three minute meditation. Before we'll unlock the five minute meditation, and after that, before we'll unlock the ten minute meditation. So it almost forces you into a scenario in which you really can't get overwhelmed by the option to do more. And I I think that in in many of these other cases, it is a matter of simply choosing one thing. Like I'm not going to get a standing treadmill desk uh, or or a treadmill and a standing desk, a topo mat, a balance board, uh, a pull-up bar, a kettlebell, and a hex bar all at once and outfit my office with all of that. The first thing I'm going to do is just slap a kettlebell near my cubicle or on the floor of my office and just start with that one thing. Or, you know, the same thing could be said for cold, all I'm going to do is keep up exactly what I'm doing my nice warm hot shower every single day. But for the last 20 seconds, I'm going to start to switch it to cold, right? You you start with the baby steps. And I, I think, you know, especially in the realm of biohacking and fitness technologies, there's so much that you could do so much that you could bite off. But you know I think starting with the foundational principles and starting small is the way to go. Like, for example, people say, Oh, everything in the book, you know, what 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 should I actually start with? What would be the lowest hanging fruit? And what I what I usually tell people is: let's say you're eating healthy, and let's say you have movement practice. The best thing that you can do is start with treating your body as a battery, you know, considering the fact that all of the cells in our body operate on electrochemical gradients, a negative charge inside a cell, a positive charge outside the cell. And we know that certain lifestyle practices or exercise practices can help to keep that charge where it's supposed to be and help to optimize specifically the health of the mitochondria because of that. And really, it it comes down to just six things, in my opinion, that are the, the biggest things, the lowest hanging fruit that everybody should incorporate um number 1 would be light i already talked about light but specifically getting out into the sunlight on a daily basis or Purchasing any of these devices that allow you to bring the sunlight into your office or into your home, like a like a photo biomodulation panel or an infrared sauna or something that allows you to biohack with light because the photons of light are one of the ways that we can charge the body in that sense. Uh, the second would be grounding or earthing, right? Going outside barefoot on a daily basis or putting a grounding or earthing mat on the floor of your office or getting some of these shoes with things like copper plugs built into the bottom of the... Them that allow you to stay grounded or earthed while you're outdoors, even if you're wearing footwear. Uh, the next two would be heat and cold, which I already talked about, right? We know both regular heat practice in which you're warming the body and a regular cooling practice in which you're cooling the body also stabilizes that electrochemical gradient and has a host of the other benefits that I just talked about and then finally good clean water and minerals like getting getting a good reverse osmosis or carbon block water filter for example and then remineralizing that water with things like salt or trace liquid minerals you know that that's another excellent way to ensure that your body has the charge has the ions that are necessary to be able to carry those charges throughout the body so if you were to start with nothing else it would be light grounding and earthing, heat, cold, water, and minerals. Like those are the basic foundational principles. You get a good nutrition and a good movement practice on top of that. And, you know, you're going to get 80% of the results.
2: So last thing I wanted to ask about was um, something you actually addressed in the book, which I was was happy to come across. And it's actually fairly early on because, you know, one of the things for me, when I look at some of this self-quantification movement and, all the ways, which are, we have these incredible tools that we can track ourselves now, but it's also can be exhausting. And you, you pose the question, does self-quantification suck the enjoyment out of sleep and exercise? And I'm curious how you wrestle with that, with all of this stuff that you're incorporating to, to make sure that you're just not just fatigued by all the information.
3: Yeah. It is kind of ironic, isn't it? Like we can, we can spend so much time trying to extend our lifespan that by the time, you know, we finish those four hours of sauna and cold and smoothies and electro stim and, you know, everything else, we're, we're pretty much grasping at straws. Like we're spending all, all that time that we could normally be spending with family, with friends, you know, learning how to play the guitar, engage in other hobbies, et cetera. And this relentless pursuit of living a long time. And, you know, we, we simply can let years literally slip by with the, you know, with a, with a myopic focus on simply extending life, you know, and, um, and it's very easy for this to become, you know, just incredibly selfish pursuit. How many things can I do to optimize my my body and my brain? And, um, you know, I, I think that a big part of this comes down to uh, time management and to stacking modalities. Like, for example, I know that earthing and grounding is good for me. I know that this photobiomodulation, the use of let's say, you know, near and far infrared light is good for me. I know I need exposure to a lot of the natural blue light in the morning. I know a, a cup of coffee or tea can give me a lot of polyphenols and flavanols that that could help to do things like, you know, lower blood-brain barrier leakage or heal neural inflammation and um you know, and I know that that something like, uh, let's say, uh, standing at a desk might be better for me than sitting for a long period of time. So when I'm reading all my research that I talked about in the morning, I've got a red light panel shining on me, I'm standing on a grounding mat at a standing desk, I'm drinking a cup of coffee and I'm wearing those in-ear light producing devices. And so, you know, I, when you stack a lot of this stuff, you know, you're, you're simply doing what you'd normally be doing, like reading research in the morning, but you're actually treating your body at the same time that you're doing it. You know, the same thing could be said with exercise, right? I know blood flow restriction is good and swinging the kettlebells is good and being outdoors is good. So I'll put on blood flow restriction bands and open the door of the garage and get out the kettlebell and stack a lot of these things at once. So, I think time management is really important. And then also just being careful. Not to become obsessed with a lot of these things. and you know an example of that would be, you know, we know that you get better sleep cycles if you finish up a large meal at least three hours, kind of like that exercise session that I talked about prior to bedtime. But at the same time we've we see you know cigarette smoking, gin chugging grandmas in Sardinia, Italy who are living long lives, despite the fact that, you know they're they're not pulling out all these biohacking stops and they're you know eating late at night for example but they're surrounded by family and friends and a robust social life and positive relationships and so Because of that, you know, in the Greenfield House, we gather as a family and have these amazing family dinners with board games and table topics and laughter and gratitude journaling for a good hour, hour and a half. But we don't even start that until about eight because that's how long it takes for everybody to just kind of be done for their day and ready to settle down for that wonderful celebration at the end of the day. And yeah. I know that that's not ideal for my sleep cycles, but you also have to consider relationships, social life, happiness, etc. And so, I always think any any of these things that can become incredibly selfish or, or selfish or you know relentless pursuit of longevity for longevity's sake, they're not as important as managing times so you have time left over for other things like social life and hobbies and relationships. And they're definitely not as important as having love and other people who you love and who love you in your life you can hang out with during the day
0: that was ben greenfield speaking with outside editor chris Kies. greenfield's new book is boundless upgrade your brain optimize your body and defy aging his website is bengreenfieldfitness.com this episode is brought to you by the 2020 ford explorer built for life's adventures Learn more about what it can do for you and meet modern-day explorers like Will Scuden at outsideonline.com slash explorers. We'll be back next week. Right. Okay, so wait a minute. So you're my boss officially, and uh, you, I just want to make it clear here, you you are endorsing midday
2: naps. I'm hundred percent endorsing midnight apps.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, I certainly know what I'm doing this afternoon, uh, right after lunch today. So, uh, thanks.